0: Thanks very much. I'd like to take the time now to introduce to you our speaker for Friday Chapel. It was the faculty's desire that, having been through two chapels together, that somehow we 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 try to pull together the themes that we have been discussing with you all week, and we felt that really the best person to do this was a person that really comes to us via secular education. And therefore, we asked Dr. Taylor Jones to be our speaker this morning. Dr. Jones uh, received his PhD in chemistry from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he has taught for five years at the US Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And it was really out of kind of a, a need or a desire to minister to Christian young people and to really see his ministry fulfilled in a greater way than it was being fulfilled in Annapolis that Dr. Jones came to us. And so at this time I'd like to introduce to you our associate professor of chemistry from the University of Texas, Dr. Taylor Jones.
1: But also a rich privilege to be here. I would really like to take just a few moments to publicly give thanks and praise to my God that I can be in such a situation as this, that I can come and approach you on a basis that one would never have the opportunity or the privilege to do in a normal university environment. I can say with a clear conscience and a clear heart before my God that I have. Had by His grace the privilege to be in a lot of institutions, a lot of noble institutions, a lot of worthy institutions. But I would not trade being here for any place that I have ever been, anywhere else. Because this is an institution that has proper priorities. It is not fundamentally and infl- fatally flawed like most, if not all, institutions. We are building here something eternal. We are dealing with the temporal, but we are building something eternal. And so for our time this morning, I want to consider four points briefly with you. And then a fourth fourth point in some detail. First of all, I want to deal with God's sovereignty and how his sovereignty gives rise in our lives to opportunity and in turn privilege associated with opportunity. And then lastly, our responsibility in light of these three other things that God has done. So the starting point for my exhortation to you as students of the Master's College today is what I perceive to be the single most important overarching principle of Christianity, and that being the sovereignty of God. So if you'd take your Bibles, please, and open them to the 46th chapter of Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah 46. And as you turn to that point, let me draw to your attention that this is the umbrella, if you will, under which all things are found as far as God is concerned. This is a favorite passage of mine from the Old Testament. And as we read this, let's consider the breadth of God's control over his creation, over the lives of men by virtue of who he is. So give your attention, please, to this passage beginning in verse 9 of chapter 46. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely. I will do it. God in all things has sovereignly ordained all things from eternity past to the present, even to eternity future. He is so governing his universe as to affect all his good pleasure. And he does that through human agents. And since God controls all things, it is obviously part of God's sovereign control that you are all here today at the Master's College. God has so worked the circumstances in my life and in each of your lives that you should be here. It is not an accident. It is not an aberration. It is not an abnormality. It is merely the outworking of our great God. No doubt many of you have great testimonies of how God removed obstacles, provided resources, raised up opportunities for you to come here. The net result of all this is that we now have before us the opportunity to become educated from a biblical perspective to a greater or a lesser degree. Now the advantages of having an education with and without a biblical perspective are really too far numerous that we could discuss them here today. But let's suffice it to say I've seen both sides of the coin. I've been involved in secular education as a student and as an instructor and I've been involved in what we call sacred education as a seminary student and in teaching here. But if you would contrast the statement of the secular university in its credo with that of a biblical university, you would find a great difference. The statement perhaps for the secular university would be, the road to the top is paved with the backs of the people you step on. And that's the way it's done. The way you get to the top is by climbing up over the dismembered bodies of other individuals. But we have a different perspective, not a temporal one, but an eternal one, and in such an atmosphere, even in a secular university, I acquired an excellent education, a fine education, but I did it for all the wrong reasons. On the other hand, you too can acquire an excellent education here at the Masters College. It is clear from this week that we have an excellent faculty. A talented faculty, a gifted faculty, a committed faculty, a competent faculty. And so the things that you can get here, you can get elsewhere. But here they have a unique difference. Now, within the context of God's sovereignty, what bearing does that have on you? Well, God has sovereignly placed you here. What should be your response? Let's look at Daniel chapter 1. We'll turn over to... The first chapter of Daniel, let's see about a young man who was also placed in an educational situation sovereignly by his God. And let's look at the first chapter and consider briefly two verses. Beginning in verse three, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Undoubtedly, this was not Daniel's first choice for a lot in life. To be carried off into exile to a strange land, strange customs, a strange language. But what was his response? Maybe you felt that your general education requirements were something like this. A strange land, a strange customs. But look at Daniel's response to this. He recognized God's hand was sovereignly upon him. And so he committed himself to the task that God placed him in. What happened? Verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So because God placed Daniel in this position, and because Daniel recognized that God had done this, he submitted to this authority. He responded in a faithful fashion. And what did God do? He rewarded him by granting him fruit to his labors. So Daniel then was given an opportunity to serve God by learning, and he seized it, not because of the learning so much, although that had great benefit in his life, as you read through the remainder of the book, but because God placed him there, and he was a servant of God. Opportunity has a close friend. It's called privilege. Now, as a child of God, you have received, no doubt, innumerable unearned privileges to which others have received absolutely no access. And your education at the Master's College, in a certain sense, is no different from this. It is a privilege to be here. Let's face it, God does not allow every Christian high school graduate, every Christian believer who has a diploma, to come here. But we have somehow gotten the idea, in our country particularly, that not only is going to school a civil right, receiving a baccalaureate degree is something that one is entitled to by virtue of the fact that he is an American. And this is unfortunately false. We have to recognize that education is a gift. And like every gift, it comes down from the Father of Lights. And he gives it to whomever he wishes. So when we do not use the opportunities that God so sovereignly and graciously lays out for us, what we're really showing is great contempt for the gift that he gives. The gift of education. And you cannot show contempt for the gift without showing contempt for the giver. Because when you cast aside what God graciously offers... What you are showing is that you really don't think that God is giving you what's best for you and you're really not going to take advantage of it. So when we look at his sovereignty and how he brings us here and the opportunity and privilege that he gives to each of you as students and us as faculty to be here, if we don't utilize that to the greatest limit of our abilities, then we have shown contempt for God. Now with privilege always comes responsibility. There is never an instance in the Word of God where God has raised up a man to a point or a woman to a point of honor or privilege and not made something incumbent upon them in response to it. It's not what we pay God for having the privilege. It's the logical outworking of our obedience to God through the privilege that He has presented to us. Now, the responsibility that you have before God is, is to take the greatest advantage humanly possible of your privilege. It will not be easy, as you can no doubt attest. I have always thought that becoming educated was something in the same ilk as digging ditches. It is no less exhausting and wearisome to physically dig a ditch than it is to learn. It is hard. We have heard the agony of learning, how one must agonize over concepts. What does the world do? In contrast to this, the world has adopted what I call the Sesame Street education. Where a student is entertained, perhaps even duped, almost conned into learning without his knowledge, where someone sort of sneaks up on the individual and inoculates him with wisdom and learning while he's not looking. What this connotes is that education can be appropriated without effort, without toil, without trial. So we must then seek to honor God by laboring in this endeavor of becoming educated. But what if we shirk this responsibility? What if we fail to do this? What if we say, no, I'm not going to seize this opportunity. I'm not going to use it as Daniel did. I'm not going to recognize that God has sovereignly put me here. I'm going to ignore all that. What will be some outcomes? I could think of at least four. I'm sure you can think of me. The first thing that we can do, which is totally tragic, is to dishonor Christ by reflecting poorly on the institution that bears his name. We are the Master's College. And we would also bring reproach upon the gospel for which we stand because people will look at you as graduates. And they will say, this is what Christian education is supposed to produce. Look what it's done. What sort of testimony will you be by virtue of how well you've used your time here? You will have lost an opportunity. A once and for all lifetime opportunity to improve your mind. One day lost is a day lost forever. You never get it back. When I was a sophomore at Clemson University taking organic chemistry, I had this class at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. That was back when everybody had Saturday classes, so that sort of dates me a little bit. But I came in bleary-eyed one Saturday morning, and I said, Dr. Dinwiddie, can we have a free cut today? You know, a cut not charged against the three that you get for a three-credit course. And he looked at me very cogently and said, Mr. Jones, there's no such thing as a free cut. And I looked back at him, and it was only years later that I understood what he meant. He meant that we only had one hour that day to come to grips with a piece of information, a portion of the body of knowledge. And if we didn't use that, we would never have it again. So it wouldn't be free time. It would be time that we would never have to utilize again to come into contact with information and knowledge. Thirdly, you are shaping here patterns of diligence and faithfulness, that will shape you throughout your entire life. If you do not use this time to shape your life for the glory of God, then you will have a much more difficult time doing that when you leave this place. A fourth possible poor outcome, you will be unable to counter... The any anti- that is falsely ascribed to Christianity. If you come out of here as a poorly developed individual, intellectually, people will look at Christian education and say, it really doesn't equip people. And you will give then credence to their false charge, false charge, that Christianity is synonymous with intellectual suicide. That to become a Christian, you have to cut yourself off at the neck and stop thinking. Now we know that not to be true because we know we stand upon a word of God that is inerrant, it is unchanging, it is infallible, it will abide forever. We use the same logic in the world that the world does. The basis is this is our working hypothesis, this is our truth. And we think and act and really function in much the same way, except that we know that our hypothesis, our truth upon which we stand is sure. It is unchanging. It will never fail. So these then are four poor outcomes. We can dishonor Christ. We lose opportunity. We fail to establish a pattern of diligence or faithfulness. And we could perhaps be unable to counter the world and show them how truly right it is for us to be involved in education in this manner rather than the world's manner. But now, how how does God view the responsibility that you have? We have a sovereign God. He gives opportunity. He gives privilege. But He also demands that we respond to that. Let's look at the 19th chapter of Luke. I think this passage, more than any other, speaks to... um, us as believers and is something that's not only applicable to you as students it's applicable to all believers it is clear that our God here is giving general truth through his son the Lord Jesus Christ and speaking to how we should be living our lives let's look at verses 11 through 13 initially of chapter 19 of Luke's gospel and while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable. Uh, excuse me. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to, went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minors, and said to them, do business with this. Until I come back. Two observations. For these hearers of this passage, it was clear that the kingdom of God was not coming immediately. It was also clear that the king was going away. And that the king was coming back. At this point in our Lord's earthly ministry, he was on his way to Jerusalem to give his life a ransom for many as the Lamb of God be crucified, to die, to be buried, to be resurrected. And while he is away in heaven, he has left all believers with a task to do. And that task is summed up in the words, his business. Now, as students, your business is to advance his kingdom by becoming increasingly equipped for excellence. And that involves education and all it entails. Using that storehouse at every available opportunity as you acquire it and when you leave, both in the local church and in the world, whatever you do, we are to use that knowledge of Scripture and other information in such a way that we can point to our Master. Why? Verse 13, the Master is coming back. The Master is coming back. And we must have then an eternal perspective as we live and walk. Now, I am certain that even though we all intellectually agree that there is no separation of sacred and secular, nevertheless, we somehow think that the Master is really only going to evaluate those things that have an obviously spiritual dimension to our lives. And by that, I mean we know that he's going to evaluate us on the basis of how we study our Bibles, what sort of prayer life we have, how active we are in evangelism, whether or not we're involved in church ministries and worship. I think we all know that. Yet the majority of your time as a student is not spent in these pursuits. If you will analyze your time, you will find that you spend most of it either attending classes, preparing for classes, doing outside reading, preparing for examinations, part-time employment, some of you full-time employment. So you really don't spend all of your time doing this. Do you think God is somehow going to call spiritual time out for these portions of our lives and not evaluate us? And then just look at those things that are related to our church life? No, of course not. We must recognize that God doesn't call spiritual time out. He will evaluate us concerning how well we utilize and conduct our time in this business. And for you, that's becoming educated. Now, how does he... Evaluing us, What will he do? Let's look at verses 14 through 19. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And it came about that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Let's consider the actions of these two slaves. They both had an equal opportunity and a privilege to work for the master. Yet notice that each one was not equally productive. But that's not really the issue. The issue for you as a student is how well are you living up to the responsibility within the limits of your particular capabilities. If you can make an A in a course and you make a B, that is to your shame. If the best you can do in a course is a C, and you make a C, that is to your great, great praise. Do not buy into the world's argument that either you are number one or nothing. That is a fallacy. Each of us has been gifted differently. The question is, how are we responding to the limits of our capabilities? Are we totally devoted, within the limits of our capabilities, to this task that is before us of becoming educated? How is your intellectual mind doing? Is it being multiplied for the glory of the Savior? I heard on the radio the other day about a high school in New Mexico that in an effort to improve attendance and grades was having lottery. If you didn't miss class for so many days, they would put your name in a drum, and they were drawing names out of the drum, and they were giving stereos, even off-road vehicles to people who had good grades and attended class. Now, see, that's what the depths that they have to go to to get a proper motive to elicit a certain behavioral response in the world. They function merely from a sad, miserable, temporal perspective. We live eternally because of our relationship with Jesus Christ and the fact that we are in Him. And as a consequence of that, everything that we do has not only temporal, but has eternal consequences. And whether these consequences manifest themselves in opportunities seized or opportunities abandoned, nevertheless, they are eternal. Now, what did the master in this parable do? First, notice that he was complimentary to both the slaves. Well done, good slave, in verse 17. And in verse 18 and 19, and he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. So God then was pleased with both these slaves because they had labored faithfully. faithfully. And faithfulness is to be our characteristic. This is the hallmark of obedience as a Christian, faithfulness. We are to let God multiply our mina on the basis of our efforts in his power as he sees fit. And whether he multiplies it fivefold or tenfold, that is within the providence of God. Now, what about the worthless slave? Let's look at verses 20 through 27. And another came, saying, Master, behold your mina, which I kept away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put the money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Had this slave been the least bit faithful, garnering the smallest amount of interest with the gift that he had been given, he would have not have received this condemnation. Please recognize that a total failure to multiply the master's mina during the total course of his absence is indicative of the absence of any real relationship with the master. The talents that God gives unbelievers, they use for their own service. They don't multiply them and use them for the glory of the Master. It is my hope and my prayer that each and every one of you is at least putting your intellectual slash spiritual mina into a bank during your time here and earning interest. I hope you see the link between the task of your study here and your responsibility before God. Your educational time here is not just a preparation for the future. It's not just work. It is your reasonable spiritual service of worship. Our master resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, we read in Luke 9, chapter 51. The task that the Father had given him, he was determined to accomplish for the glory of his Father. The task the Father has given you as students here is to resolutely set your face toward the Jerusalem of expanding your mind to the limits of its academic capabilities, using the strength of the one in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with the words of Benjamin Disraeli, perhaps Great Britain's greatest Prime Minister, in addressing the House of Commons, He said, a university should be a place of light, of liberty, and of learning. And he was right. He was really right. A proper university must be a place where the light of the world, Jesus Christ, is glorified and served. It must be a place of liberty. It must be a place where the Holy Spirit dwells, for we know from the Word of God that there, where the Spirit dwells, there is liberty. Finally, a university must be a place of learning. It must be a place where learning is properly understood. A place where students are submitting to a totally sovereign and gracious God who has called each and every one of you individually and personally to be students. Where you are to use the mina of your intellectual gifts to multiply it. To spread its fruit wherever you go. In the local church or in the world or wherever God leads you. So that in all things we might be to the eternal praise of the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you.
0: Well, I trust that uh, these three chapels have kind of given you new insight into the hearts of those of us who desire to impart to you the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ has graciously allowed us to come in in contact with over the years Dr. Jones uh, said something that I think we all need to take with us and it was simply this little statement at the very end and I think this goes a great deal to really share with you our heart and it's simply this are you earning interest? you know when each of you think about the commitment that your parents have made to you that maybe members in your church have made to you that maybe you have even made to yourself in terms of earning what it takes to come to college maybe some of you here are on scholarship you realize that somebody graciously gave those funds so that you could increase the mina your opportunities young people listen I speak from experience this morning I look back in my own life and I kind of look at the book of Jonah And the one thing that comes through in the book of Jonah to me more than anything else is that God gave Jonah in his sovereignty a second chance As I look back at my own life And I look back at my own college experience and I see myself sitting out there where you are today And I look back and I see how I literally squandered maybe a half a dozen years before God really got a hold of me and was able to impress upon me the importance and the wonderful opportunity that I would have to gain an education so that I could serve Him to my maximum I didn't really understand that until I was almost 28 years of age there are a number of you out there this morning that still do not understand that point and unfortunately you're going to have to learn the hard way young people listen You have a wonderful opportunity. Do you realize that less than 10% of the population of the United States of America are college graduates? You can imagine how much smaller that proportion is of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Listen young people, let me just challenge you as representing the faculty this morning. God in His sovereignty has led you here. He is giving you an opportunity to obtain something that very few young people in this world will have a chance to obtain. Listen, take advantage of it so that He can use you to His maximum. Let's pray. Father. Thank-